Welcome to Rants About Humanity, a podcast where we interview guest experts with passionate opinions about important topics that don't get enough attention. Raw, unfiltered, thought-provoking perspectives with no censorship. With your host, Philip Van Houta. Welcome, 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 everyone. Today, I have Professor Dario Nardi on the Rants About Humanity podcast. Professor Nardi is a world-renowned author, researcher, speaker, and expert in neuroscience and personality and body-mind practices. He holds a senior lecturer position at the University of California in Los Angeles, where he won UCLA's Copenhagen Award for Innovative Use of Technology in 2005 and UCLA's Distinguished Teacher of the Year in 2011. His books include Neuroscience of Personality, The Magic Diamond, Eight Keys to Self-Leadership, Jung on Yoga, and Facets of Ayahuasca, among other titles. He writes game books and fiction, and he is the creator of the Personality Types iPhone app. Since 2006, Dario has focused on conducting hands-on brain research, utilizing insights of real-time EEG technology and research about personality. Welcome on the podcast, man. And I got to say, I'm jealous of your name, Dario Nardi. It's so, it sounds like an evil supervillain or, or a, I really like the name, you know, Dario Nardi. You know, it's uh, for, for much of my life, the first, well, from age three to 18, my parents got divorced when I was three. And then I took my stepdad's last name until I was 18. And his last name was Power. So <laughs> I was Dario Power for 15 years. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. That's actually pretty cool. Like, yeah, yeah. If, if you could have a superpower, what would it be? You know, in practice, it's got to be teleportation because I like to travel a lot and I get irritated by waiting in traffic or whatever it is. I mean, there's a certain fun of flying in the airplane. I don't mind that. But still, teleportation would be, uh, would be my go-to. Yeah, like the instant teleportation of like Dragon Ball Z Goku that you can instant teleport to any place. That would be super yeah, awesome. Yeah. You're a fascinating character, man. Personality, neuroscience on the forefront of that research and also into gaming and even shamanism and psychedelics. Were you also curious? And how do you contain your curiousness? You know, so somebody just sent me uh, an article and uh, he's, he says it's about polymaths. He's like, would you say you're a polymath? And, uh, I, you know, I don't consider myself a genius or something like that. You know, I, too, got B's in uh, calculus and uh, the chemistry and so on. I was never an A student, but I do have a lot of interests. And my mom describes not once, but several times when I managed to escape uh, my crib and climb out the window and go down walking down the block to explore. And so I've always been very intrepid that way. In fact, even when she moved the crib to the opposite side of the room, I just managed to move the crib myself and reposition it and create a ladder and then climb out. So is, uh, I, I think it's in my blood. I certainly have enjoyed living in foreign countries and exploring new things. I'm shocked that neuroscience has actually held my interest for almost 15 years. And uh, it's certainly it's outlasted most of the other interests. Although gaming, no, the first time, first time I played Dungeons and Dragons in 1982. So for all of you listening, just think of Stranger Things. I lived in suburbia in 1982, 83, playing Dungeons and Dragons. And the gaming captured me ever since. So I do think, yeah, maybe it's something that's just um, is alive in me. 
Yeah, because we're talking about personalities and mostly from the Myers-Briggs perspectives. And I'm also an INTJ like you. And sometimes they think INTJ is the master planner, master strategist, but they also have a huge part of them that is imagination, right? That makes them feel alive. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And it's, uh, at times it can be a curse because there's a part of me is like, oh no, I shouldn't be reading. I feel guilty when reading many times fiction because I, I feel I should be writing something, you know, that that's, uh, I'll still be learning and I'm writing and it's creative. And so one of my, the sort of jokes I tell myself is that each interest I have is a distraction from the previous interest. So I can take a break and then come back to it. And so that's, uh, yeah, there, there's a big element of imagination. And I found that um, certainly fiction and gaming is a way to do that. But almost everything in life, I, I feel we can bring our imagination to it. We're going to talk a bit about personality. And for people who are not acquainted with personality, what exactly is personality? <laughs> so for, for many decades in academia and outside too, personality was defined as a consistent or stable set of characteristics uh, that has come under question in the last decade as these longitudinal studies over 30, 40, 50, 70 years have come to fruition, showing that, yeah, you know, personality characteristics uh, like extroversion and openness and so on, that they, they are stable from 5 to 10 years and from 10 to 20, but they change slightly over time. And the accumulation actually when you compare age 15 to age 75, as they've been able to do now, they see people can be quite different. Mm. So it turns out, and I really feel that if we want to talk about personality, it's not just a stable set of characteristics. It's about development. Yeah, because often you hear that I want, don't want to be put into a box when it thinks it's personality. People feel like you put them in a box and they can't evolve anymore. Yeah, yeah, you know, there, there is that. And, you know, the way I like to say it is the way my mentor and marriage and family therapist, Linda Behrens, describes it is that any kind of personality framework or whatnot, it provides a language so we can talk about something. It provides a lens so we can see, perceive what's going on and the lever in order to make changes because it's ultimately in any kind of science or technology or the tool that we use, can we do something with it? And, you know, I, I think if we're just going to say we're going to reduce the world to two kinds of people, I don't think that it's very productive or, you know, a way a therapist, I, this was years ago, described, you know, how, how do you treat everyone uniquely? Uh, you give them flowers. Like, what else can you do? Like, you have to start somewhere. And I think if we say that there are eight types or 16 or whatever, as long as that has a, you know, is not like ethically disruptive or really misleading to people, they're meaningfully different. This is a great place to start. And so it's about starting conversations and uh, starting to do perspective shifting. Oh, okay, people process information more than I do. And I would say, of course, as many people are discovering that the interesting, cool part of personality is about the, the psychological processes, the verbs in our lives, not that these like, oh, the apple is red and it's round or it's a, you know, green and it's a, so on is no, you know, it's, it's a sensing, intuiting, thinking, perceiving, uh, extroverting, introverting. We all do all of these things, but what kind of mix do we have? Yeah, and that's sometimes the thing that people don't realize about personality. It's oftentimes people have, if only people were thinking like me and they have their own lens that they project on other people, but when you can understand the vectors and the different lenses through which people make sense or intuit or whatever, perceive, judge about the world, 
you can understand them better and you can adapt to fit their framework and you can see the world through their doors, their eyes, which is much easier than having to have everyone look at the way the same way as you do. One of the things that I think is a big confusion, and maybe you can correct me here, is people mistake extraversion with being outgoing. Can you explain a bit more about what actually extroverted and being introverted is and maybe make a little bit of a link with the cognitive functions? Because most people just look at four MBTI letters and think ENTJ, okay, I'm extroverted, I'm intuiting, I'm a thinker, and I'm a judger. Yeah. You know, there's a couple of ways to approach this. And one is from a neuroscience point of view, Mm -hmm. we've noticed that when people take in information, like we hear words, there's two different paths that that can take within the brain. One is to go directly from like the frontal temporal area right to the executive regions of the brain in the front where we act upon that information in some way. That's fast. It's quick. It's not necessarily a closed experience. It could be goal focused, but we can also use it as part of brainstorming or whatever. It's, it's really sort of like directed to the outer world and our response to it. And that's how Jung described extroversion. That part is being oriented to the outer world. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't mean that we're like, you know, jibber jabbering and it being energetic. It just could be observing and paying really close attention and interacting with, you know, based on our observation. The other circuit in the brain is one that takes like a more circuitous route. So it's going more towards the back of the brain. It's connecting to those parts that go in with memory and reflection and 3D uh, kind of mental modeling. And there's like this, okay, I've heard these words, but what does this mean and how does this fit? Or does it remind me of anything? How do I feel about it? You know, there's different ways to respond. And then once it's gone through like that little like set of rooms there, that maze, then it's sent to the executive region. And so there's a delay, but it's a thoughtful delay. And, and you know, maybe the person has lost out because of the delay, but on the other hand, maybe they make smarter choices. So the evolutionarily, obviously, they're both useful. We Everybody has both circuits in the brain. It's certainly not just a continuum of behavior. It actually is meaningfully different. And And so I would say that that's a great example of why we want to think about the cognitive processes and just, you know, think of a personality in general is this is more than just what we see on the surface. Yeah. And that is often when I try to explain people what it actually meant was that you have uh, perception and judgment functions. You have feeling, thinking, intuiting and sensing, and they can be extroverted, which means it's from, you know, the outside to the inside, let's say, and you have more introverted from the inside to the outside. And you kind of have a cognitive stack in terms of like frequency, like how much developed they are. And you go like from the strongest, second strongest, third strongest, fourth strongest. And that is basically what it means. So when you have an E or an I as the first letter in the four-letter dichotomy, it just means if your most powerful cognitive function is introverted or extroverted. And I think yeah. that's a different uh, because there's going to be a lot of personality freaks checking out this, but that's a bit of a nuance to know because it's 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 a vastly interesting kind of uh, science, the personality science, but it's like a lot of vectors that uh, have to do with it. You know, also your mentor, Linda Berens, I read all her books, which is very interesting. She also talks about interaction styles and she connects it like with language learning styles, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and something that my research has, has, you know, revealed that other people have found too, from different fields even. So one is Viktor Galenko and his work, he's a Ukrainian psychologist looking at, at the sort of flavors of type. 
you know, are the four subtypes for each type, but really, you know, based actually in, in a lot of material that's out there. Another one is, her name's Helen Fisher. And oh, I read her stuff on like why we love. She was focusing on like seduction yeah. and evolutionary science. Yeah. Yeah. So she has that angle. I, I haven't actually followed so much her relationship angle. Uh, it's just looking at like her raw research results, especially when she breaks things down into eight rather than four. And they so clearly are, are quite similar to, to the Jungian material. Uh, that is just fascinating. And again, and then I look at brain wiring and I see again, like these four subtypes. So I think it, it's the way forward in terms of the 21st century and what excites me, I think maybe about the neuroscience and personality is that people are, we have the capacity to go for a little bit more like distinctions and specialization, like with computer stuff and whatever we can say, oh, you know, it's more than you and I, you know, are, are both, we identify as with this INTJ description that we can get in, like how is our development, how is our career and the cultural background and so on influenced us. And, and maybe then that allows us to actually find really like a cool connections between ourselves and say people we might think we're very different and we're like, oh, but we have, you know, these things, other things in common. So it's still an area which is, is I feel like evolving and maturing mm -hmm. uh, well beyond, you know, the, the Myers-Briggs type indicator is like uh, 80 years old now. Mm -hmm. uh, and not the actual indicator. I mean, that was revised in the late 90s. So that is actually quite rigorous. And, and criticisms against it are all based on versions that no longer exist, created by people who aren't involved anymore. Like now, all the recent stuff is, is by, you know, psychometricians and is the decent stuff. But yeah, my interest is more like just trying to figure out and, and make useful. What is your opinion about some people who say, and uh, you also have, uh, there's also someone I, I follow, like C.S. Joseph, who talks about different sides of the mind. What do you think of some people who say like, yeah, you know, I may be one type, but sometimes I feel or I act like another type. Is there something as a subconscious, unconscious, or a cognitive focus shift? Or what's your opinion about that? Uh, you know, I, I don't analyze that people people that deeply, which might seem odd for someone mm -hmm. in, in my interest. I, I don't try and sort of psychoanalyze people. I would say from my own personal experience, uh, for example, I, I noticed in my early 20s, mid-20s, as I was starting to get towards that teaching track, uh, did you know, like being the, like a dowdy, quiet, nerdy professor who's always facing the board is not a successful way to get ahead as a teacher. Dario nerdy. <laughs> That's right. Now, I did not have to grow up with that, thankfully, because I had Dario power. But, <laughs> yeah. it, you know, the, the possibility was not lost on me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I really thought, you know, the ENFPs are so popular and they're so great with like tons mm -hmm. of different ideas. It's like, what is an ENFP teacher like? And I really adopted that persona as a teacher and as a mm. public presenter and about telling stories and being a little bit you know, ENFPs have this power to like tell things which sound really personal without actually revealing something truly personal about themselves. You go away feeling like you had the great conversation and it was so intimate and yet... I they thrive on energy and then they pass energy and you feel like super enthusiastic in the moment, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So it, it uh, you know, clearly it's worked out as a teaching method. And, and that, and I always just made sure that one, I have a certain amount of flexibility with teaching how and what, and that I actually care about it. Like, I, I'm not going to teach something I don't care about. And I, I think it is possible to care about calculus 
you know, not only is it fascinating, it, you know, applications like so. I, I think almost any subject can be made uh, made really intriguing. So in that sense, yeah, I do think we adopt stuff. There certainly is a part of me that romance uh, romanticizes, say, ISFP is like this, you know, like the artist, the musician, the, obviously not all ISFPs are, are that particular flavor, but, you know, that, that's a, a piece that I can sort of turn on, you know, in that other kind of more, you know, romantic situation. So I use Linda Barron's interaction styles as a way to sort of, we, because she says that's the most flexible aspect of type, that we can learn the mm. behavior to shift. And so just shifting the interaction style and a little bit of the qualities like of the, the function stack in me to bring those out. And it's not easy. I don't think that happens naturally. I think it takes training and, and it, it, it takes like a choice to, to do that. But I, I think better to try and to enjoy the joie de vie of life than to just sort of stick in the box. Let's go into Dario nerdy stuff. <laughs> what areas of the brain are linked with certain temperaments or cognitive functions or interaction styles? Are there any vectors that you combine with certain areas of the brain based on your research right now? As you know, so in the beginning, I certainly hoped, like many people, that somehow, you know, type would be very clearly, like, if you're this type, you're going to be using these two parts of your brain or mm-hmm. something. Each function as like a different brain region. It's not like that at all. In retrospect, I'm actually very thankful it's not because that would be really weird. That would be us not really making use of our brain. So we're really following this principle of nature and nurture that, that what I see is that the, the brain, when we look at the brain, it's the snapshot of the developed self. And we tend to develop the skills, which also means using them and repeating them and so on, digging those like neural pathways, digging them in. We tend to develop the skills that meet Yes, our psychological needs and also our practical needs. So that the brain of an INTP psychotherapist is not going to look the same as the brain of INTP engineer versus INTP artist. In fact, they shouldn't. Like that would be weird. Mm-hmm. And that would be very behavioralist perspective. And, and I believe that when we talk about psychology, it means psyche. So it relates to the soul in some way. So it is not individual regions. That said, there definitely is statistically meaningful differences. People of different types using their brains in different ways, not just individual aspects, but networks, uh, whole brain activity. When do they get into the state of flow? Uh, Are there like affiliate types that are more left-brained or uh, pragmatic type that are more like right-brained? Or is that kind of old school way of dividing no, people. I, I could say, I mean, certainly, you know, it's funny. So in neuroscience, they, they talk about left and right hemispheres and they are meaningfully different as hemispheres, but most people are not definitively left or right brain. I mean, mm. certainly 95% of people, at least I didn't, you know, do any math on it, but they're using, a, you know, both halves of their brain. What I would say that's an example of something that's a definitive connection is that when we look at the left prefrontal cortex, so that means like the left part the behind your forehead, and then the right prefrontal cortex. So these are like two like really distinct executive parts of your brain. That the, the left prefrontal region, what lights it up? When we make decisions, when we filter and focus, when we give an explanation. That sounds a lot like the judging functions and what Jung called the rational activity. Mm-hmm. When we look at the right prefrontal cortex, what lights it up? When we're engaged in brainstorming, when we're scanning the environment looking for something interesting, when we're 
reflecting on our own inner life, not to make judgment, but simply reflecting upon it, managing an open-ended process. Everything from like when you do online banking and you don't, you know, you go in and there's a multiple, like 50 things to do, like to look at, to, to collate, or you're out in the world and you're interacting in a new situation. Right prefrontal cortex sounds a lot like the perceiving functions. Mm. So I wouldn't say that our functions are like just in the prefrontal cortex or something, but it definitely seems like we have introversion, extroversion. Those are neuroscience, like textbook things. We have left and right prefrontal cortex, which on the face of it, uh, and I can certainly say from my own research that we have biases and those relate to judging and perceiving functions. So that would be thinking and feeling on the left and sensing and intuiting on the right. And then beyond that, there's more, but, but I would say that's an example where it looks like pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. I know you're much into uh, spirituality and also shamanism and the uh, psychedelics. We will talk about it in a later part of the episode, but given all these ways, how the brain is wired and these personality types, do you see it as just a natural cause of evolution or is it some kind of intelligent design? You know, everything is, is always advancing hand in hand in hand. So the idea in anthropology, which I, I did teach in anthropology mm -hmm. for, gosh, I don't know, eight years, something like that, is that in language, tool use, social structures, uh, the brain, even some of our physiology advance together simultaneously. So that it's not like one had to be there for the other or, or so on. And that, that creates a, a complex picture, certainly. When we look at the, the temperaments, for example, we can see, I, I think that there's this natural matchup in the way that people, well, one person in particular saw like, gee, if you take North and South America and pair them against Europe and Africa, they seem to go together like puzzle pieces. And that was dismissed for a long time. And so but when I look at, at temperament, I see that same kind of pattern. And we look at like periods like a hunter-gatherer lifestyle, agricultural lifestyle, industrial information-oriented lifestyle, what we have now, for the most part, none of them are more or less advanced than anybody else. Being a hunter-gatherer actually takes tremendous intelligence and skills, perhaps even more than most people use today to survive. You know, be, be working in agriculture, very hard work, you know, takes actually a lot of knowledge and intelligence to survive with that as well, to prosper. So I, I do, I, I can see how different phases of human progress, and I know progress often sounds linear, I, I don't mean it that way, but the changes that we've seen over several tens of thousands of years, that they clearly they've supported and made room for all of the different types in some way. And that's something Jung believed, the type was something that came about as a way for us to coherently handle the challenges that we face uh, as human beings as individuals who've inherited certain skills like musician or athlete or whatever, as people in social structures where we have to go to school and get married and serve in the military and all the, you know, work at a job, all these things. So, you know, a, a lot of things are not new. Uh, most things are not new. And, and I really see type as something that evolved. And if some types are only 1% of the population, this sort of suggests maybe that's the, the number that was needed at least for, for much. And now as times change, I think there are overlays. Uh, maybe things are pushed in slightly different directions. I would just say slightly. So I see it as a combination. Now, the fact that there's a beautiful symmetry to it at the same time, that does maybe get us to think, you know, maybe there's more to it than just the sort of the, the history of the human race. 
And if we look at the, the physics, you know, standard model table, we also see tremendous symmetries there too. Yeah, we also and, see that when you look at the percentages of the distribution of the type, that some certain, like, let's call it more masculine traits are more prevalent in men, and those masculine types are more in men there. And when you look at uh, female, like INTJs and other certain types, that they're actually a very small population. So you also see kind of the masculine-feminine spectrum within the types and the prevalence yeah, of that type. Was, was, uh, both noticed observations for the research he could do at the time, and of course was very interested in, in what he called masculine and feminine principles, seeing both in, in each person, all of us. You know, some people do, and, and I do understand, you know, there definitely is both a hormonal period in the womb and during teenage years, which is going to strongly shape a person's experience, and their socialization, which happens uh, as well. Not in the womb, but, but you know, in childhood mm -hmm. and adolescence. So the, those play into it. And what I feel is really fascinating is I look at my database and I sort of sort people into groups looking to see like, gee, which factors influence mm -hmm. what? And one of the things I noticed was that uh, dividing into different age cohorts, that for the 15 to 25-year-olds, if we wanted to reduce all the brain wiring patterns to just two categories, and we don't have to reduce to two, we can, you know, we can sort them any way we want, to four, to eight, to seven, whatever. Uh, you reduce to two, actually, masculine, male-female, I don't want to say masculine-feminine, but male-female sex is, is really a huge difference. But if we look at age 25 and beyond, the 25 to 55 cohort, what I see is the career is the most important impact mm. by far. So if the person is, say, a male a artist, you know, like uh, music, a painting, this and that, you know, they're going to end up with this holistic brain structure, which maybe statistically was more common somewhat among females that were teenagers but that disappears and it ends up being the career that's the biggest impact. So I'm somebody who really, you know, hues to that nature and nurture mm -hmm. perspective. Both have impact. I think some of them, when people are younger, certainly the biology will play more of a role because hormones affect a whole bunch of things, not just the physical traits, the, the attention, energy, all of these things. But, yeah, if, but if, if, if yeah. anybody ever has time and uh, besides checking you, which is just so fantastic to watch. Type in YouTube, watch the Human Behavioral Biology series from Dr. Robert Sapolsky. It's amazingly entertaining to see. And in the end, you also see that he says, like, it's a nurture and nature thing. You know, there's almost no, that it's a gene environment interaction and everything is an end end. And I think it's strange that sometimes we live now in a society where they think like everything is environmental. It's always an interaction, of course. Yeah, yeah. And, and I would say, you know, to some extent today, it's understandable because people are trying to compensate for hundreds of years, at least, and really thousands of years in every culture, you know, trends is where everything was decided by biology. Well, but, you know, but they, they, they feel it's a limiting that it's biology, but I find it sometimes, and sorry to interrupt you, but I find it freeing to know my default tendencies. I don't feel limited, but when I understand myself, I can use it in a better way. For, for me personally, it was very freeing to know that. Yeah, you know, so the, it's so funny that, you know, Jung talked about this civilized and, and barbaric, and he didn't mean it in a cultural sense. He meant it in a psychological sense. 
that when people were one-sided and they were oblivious to it and they did not have a choice about the behavior that was one-sided, whatever that might be, that they were barbaric, you know, e even if they're dressed in the finest clothes and eating the finest cuisine and use the finest language, whereas uh, the person who necessarily we specialize, you know, in the career and, and so on, but if a person is aware of it, and they make wise choices around that to say, yes, I'm male or yes, I'm female. And what do I want to do with that? Like, am, am I thinking really for myself and weighing it with all of the other things going on in my life and my aspirations? And then he called that very civilized. And that the person living in the jungle or, you know, the tundra or whatever could actually be incredibly civilized in that respect. And is whether or not we're aware and we have choices and we have the freedom, of course, you know, to act on those choices. And that's, that's I, I feel like, the beautiful thing about all of the personality stuff, Jungian psychology, anything where people are getting to know themselves. I certainly found with psychedelics that that was a very freeing in a way for psychedelics to help me identify the few essential maybe half dozen things that are truly me. And that there's nothing I can really do about that. That's just sort of who I am, the, the slots I'm in. And that those aren't terrible, they're gifts, like embrace them for what they are. I certainly agree that it can be very freeing if we view it that way. And if we have a way to, to actually talk about and see those and to act on them. I think a lot of life uh, until your 30s is like trying to adapt what other people expect of you, but that becomes so exhausting because some things take a lot of repetition to change or you just can't change them. And as soon as I became 30, 35, it was more like, what kind of things of myself do I want to integrate? What kind of things I want to work on? I want to work on my weaknesses, but I also want to realize I was put on this earth for a certain purpose with certain strengths. That's what I like about personality research and knowing the personalities. All of those people have talents. They're like puzzle pieces. They really work together. Also interaction styles. When you take a look at see people who have to start, the finish, background type, people who want to just map it out in processes. That's amazing because then you can put the right people at the right position. And then we delve into the thing that you're also passionate about, education reform. Sometimes, and I have a quote that says, higher education is a way to buy time to figure out what you really want to do in life. <laughs> so, we see, so people yeah. only ask that question about what are my strengths? What am I here to do? Only when they graduate. And I think it's such a pity that these questions... These default tendencies, these strengths, these weaknesses are not being investigated or worked with in education. Yeah, you know, traditional academic education programs still are very close to the one size fits all model in the many cases, you know, or, or is the more recent years embracing diversity, but it's not cognitive diversity. And that's, and I mean cognitive in the sort of personality sense of the word. The sensing the versus intuiting preference, like left and right handedness, you know, we use both. But yeah, no, I, I'm very passionate about education. I think I have a right to say something about it, having been recognized multiple times. Mm -hmm. uh, my students certainly felt I was a good teacher. Probably wasn't uh, the, the best teacher for every single one of my students, mm -hmm. but I would say at least 95% is what I really aimed for. And I was like, temperament gave me a really simple rubric to use. Okay, four temperaments. And so one of them is going to be like activity and action and application oriented, the three A's. Another one is going to be thinking about like stories and metaphor and values and identity 
And so I'm like, okay, that's the second one. And I want to make sure that I teach, including mm. both of those two different things. The third one, which is going to be closer to my heart, is going to be things like mental models, strategizing, sort of conceptual frameworks, looking for leverage. How do we understand and design systems that are robust? That, that that's a, a third way of thinking. And then there is a fourth way, which normally is not is certainly not my strength or go-to, but I actually made an effort to honor it. It's people, for example, who rely upon memorization and want the teacher to tell them what to do, or at least give them default things is like, yeah. oh, you can write about anything. I would tell people, you know, you can do your, I, I shepherded almost 2,000 projects, individual social science research projects, senior projects. And, and there were people who, you know, I could tell them you can do anything, but they want examples. Mm -hmm. uh, like, what, what do I work from? Can you just, they, you know, and I, so I gave them opportunities, uh, not only examples, uh, guidelines, how do you write a good paper, making these things available. So I really made an effort, you know, and I would go outside the classroom and it wasn't a lecture. We had an hour, say in 15 minutes. So we have a little prep on, then we go out and we do live group simulation outdoors in the park. And Los Angeles makes that easy because, you know, it's good weather most of the time. Mm -hmm. And then we come back in and we debrief it. And the students just love that because then I don't need to teach the, the ideas to them. It's not a transfer of knowledge from the board, my head to the board, mm -hmm. to the students. You know, what it is, is I'm creating experience. They learn, I mean, of course, you know, like prepping them for it and debriefing, but it create the experience. They learn the principles firsthand. And, and the great, very timely example, I think, is that I had this one where you usually have 100 to 150 students. They're in eight to 10 different groups that are that reflect groups in society, like a medical, science, uh, media, government, like immigrant groups, and so on. So they had these different groups. The media group, invariably, because they had the capacity, their superpower in the simulations to go around and interview other groups. And they realized that, one, you cannot learn the truth by interviewing people. Because if you have 150 people and it's crazy what's going on, so then the media people think, you know what, we're just going to make up because at every turn, every 10 minutes, they could stop and give the news. And many times they would just give up and they say, you know what, we're going to make up the news. And that way, maybe we can influence the simulation to go. And I am not kidding. Like, this was one of the predictable outcomes. Not every media group did that, but most of them. And it, the good news is it never worked. The stories that they told, yes, confused people more. But they didn't actually impact the unfolding of the group. And if they did, it usually created more conflict than if they had simply said, like, we heard this and we also heard that. And that, I, I think, is the lesson. But, you know, most people today in the media and in almost every sphere of life, they don't encounter, you know, you and I have talked about this, they, they don't encounter the consequences of their decisions or the consequences of their ideas. So they're free to really think about anything, including just sheer nonsense. What do you think is sheer nonsense? I'm curious. It's when ideas are divorced from reality. And that's a, it, the consequences of one's choices. I don't know what reality is exactly, but I do know what consequences are. And they feed back to me. And usually the lower person is on the totem pole in a society, the more they're going to be subject to the consequences of their choices. One wrong choice and they're out of a job, and then a month later they're out of their apartment, and then so on, they're homeless, and that kind of thing. People who are, are privileged, and I do, I do believe that there is a category of people who are privileged, certainly the 1%, uh, or 1% 1 of 1%, 
that they will never experience the consequences mm -hmm. of their choices. In fact, they can avoid not only the consequences, they can avoid transparency and they can avoid accountability. So we end up with a system which sort of by definition is divorced from the feedback loops that are normally built into the human experience. And that's very different than a leader of, you know, we say in anthropology of 20 to 200 people is the size of a village or a hunting, mm -hmm. you know, like a migrating group. And every single person would suffer the consequences or enjoy the benefits of the feedback loops. But today, most people don't, you know, experience that. It's certainly the ones that I'm encountering who we might say are like, you know, more socioeconomically safe. Yeah, we kind of have a um, balance sometimes between responsibility and victimhood. And my dad was also a teacher and it kind of shifted like, does your, I don't know if that also happened with you, but it happened like, does your child have bad grades? With my dad, it was, it was the child. And now does your child have bad grades? It sometimes shifts towards, oh, the teacher must be doing something wrong, you know? And actually the quality of education sometimes is like going down because the grades are going down and then they, they numb down the quality of education instead of having the, the students or the children step up? You know, I, I was so lucky to not only go to a very good high school, it was a public high school, but it was ranked number 10 in the United States at the time. And that, that gave me an example of a really good education. And I compare that with the, some of the adults, the students that I had over the years who were also teachers. I had one African-American gentleman who was uh, teaching in LA Unified School District. And, and the stories he had to tell about the cultural and attitudinal obstacles that students faced when coming in, both from fellow students, from their parents, all of these things. And I you know, genuinely believe he was a math teacher that he really was trying his very best. But it was tremendous headwinds in, in, from multiple directions. And then, of course, there are many mediocre teachers. The word mediocre, by definition, you know, is meaning common or average. Mm -hmm. So that's the, the way it goes. And, and what's so sad is that our education system is based upon the Prussian education system. So mm -hmm. for those who don't know, Prussia was a, a part of Germany in, in the late 19th and early 20th century. It, it's, it, you know, a, a nation that no longer exists very militant and, you know, sort of factory oriented by its nature, even before factory thinking came along. And that's how we've designed in America, our school system. I'm very much a basics person, by the way. I, I don't believe in new math or common core math or those kinds of things, because they're designed by people who cognitively don't think in a way that the majority of students do. So I, I think that's a big boo-boo. INTP should not be designing, I'm sorry to say, but unless they know type and are working with type in mind, they should not be designing educational programs, for example, for the other 99% of the population who don't think like them. Which is they will do it a bit like an engineer and like robots and very systematized, right? Yeah, 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 which is great. You know, I discovered many shortcuts in math that are part of Common Core. And the principles of Common Core, like ideally a person will do this or that. Oh, yeah, absolutely, ideally. But that is not, we know statistically, that is not how the vast majority of children think. Well, that's just one of the things that I see when you look at temperaments. Uh, you have four kinds of temperaments, uh, guardian, artists, uh, rational, slash intellectuals, idealists. And our education system is mostly created for like guardians. And what we see right now with all the stuff that's going on in Corona is that people have to blindly follow authority, not ask questions. Super frustrating for me as an INTJ because I always want to know the why. 
And it's just like, because it's been told, because I tell you so, okay, in, in raising children, in education, in getting a job. And we are weak toward conformity. And also when personality types that the most, the biggest population part are like the guardians. And that makes it sometimes frustrating for artists and intellectuals slash rationals or idealists because they think differently. <laughs> they step outside of the narrative. And I graduated in sociology and it was so frustrating. Listen, Philip, we're going to show you all those great different thinkers who, st who stood out of the frame and the zeitgeist. But here in school, you just have to repeat what they said. And I'm like, but I'm looking up to those rebels and people who think differently. Shouldn't I do the same? No, 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 no. Don't think for yourself. And that was very frustrating for me. Yeah. I, you know, the way I got around that in the years, I, I haven't been teaching regularly now. But the way I got around that in social science was that I used a group simulation. You know, and, and of course, I thought carefully to make sure that people, you know, weren't frightened to participate or whatever it is that didn't happen. And, you know, I really felt like let the experiences teach the students. And there was such a wonderful moment one time. I mean, it was one of many wonderful moments. Being a teacher is amazing that way. Is a student who came up to me and he was a senior and his background was political science and philosophy. And, uh, and they were mostly social science students, but this was his background. And he said, you know what? Professor, Professor Dario, because that's usually what they called me, is like, I don't, don't take this the wrong way. He says, but I just realized, and this is after they did this one hour simulation, nobody behaved the way I was taught that they would <laughs> behave. And that actually everything I've learned in the past four years is wrong. And I felt such a leap of joy in my heart because to me, that's what education is about. You know, it, it's fine to have these different models and different ideas. They all came from observing something. They came from somewhere. But if those ideas have you or the person has adopted them purely as like a social status thing, that that's really sad. It's really unfortunate. That and time and again, students would tell me that the benefit that they got most out of UCLA was their uh, extracurricular activities with other students. And I don't mean those extracurricular activities. Partying! <laughs> you know, students invited me to parties too, <laughs> which was awkward and then was cool. As I got older, it actually got easier. <laughs> yeah, starting at 28 and then they're 22 is weird because it's like too close together. Yeah. No, they really meant things. Like the students were really quite vigorous in doing stuff that would be like, I remember this one student, ESTP preferences, and I know this because I would inevitably take them through temperament and then interaction mm -hmm. styles and so on. And he would organize students to go down, I think it was to Guatemala, to build houses over spring break. Mm -hmm. And what an amazing experience that was. And they're giving back to community in some way. And it is just time and again, I saw stuff like this. And that they were really, for the most part, di disappointed. And studies have shown on cognitive growth that the second half of college, the second two years, uh, have no discernible impact on cognitive skills. Well, uh, with students, the first two years, statistically, they do have an impact. But after that, no. And I think that's a tragedy because I, I call those I call those the let's get it over with years. <laughs> yeah. You know, there is an element of that. And if the students are, are they have the opportunity and they, they have the, the inner drive to do it, they will make the most of it. I had students. I was very lucky. You know, UCLA has such great students. The, there were people who would really take initiative, but they also felt like their energy and their brains and their capacity were being wasted. And that's really, and I'm not saying that that means that everything was easy. I mean, as an undergrad in engineering, I will tell you, engineering was never easy. 
even when it was taught well, it was simply digestible. You know, I believe any discipline, if it's taught well, it's challenging. I'm also so passionate about it because when you really ask any professor or self-development person about what they would love to change, they always go down to like raising of children or education. And uh, in a way, Nietzsche was like one of the first uh, self-development gurus. And he he talked Mm -hmm. about living up to your potential, the potential you. And what I often do with people is one of the basic things. Do you love to work with processes or do you love to work with people? And you know what I see? They choose a degree just because it gets a job. And then they're a people-oriented person and they have to type Google Sheets all the time. And they have a burnout. Why? And they procrastinate because they have to do the majority of the time something they weren't meant to do. That's not their talent. Or the other way around, people who love to work on a website and they have to give meetings and network with people and it just exhausts them. And I see it all the time. And what happens, they keep on doing it until they're 30, save job, enough money. People say like, hey, keep on doing it. It has a nice paycheck. And those people start developing themselves in the weekend. And then finally, they change direction in career in their 30s, mid-30s, because they finally discover what they're meant to do. And I think it's such a pity of all those years to set the direction in a way that's more aligned with what you're meant to do. You know, it's funny. One of the advice, piece of advice I would give students is that when you're in your 20s, I would say before 35, and you go to work for corporations, small or large, that they will milk you for all that they can. And they know that they can pay you less, that you lack perspective to know what your true Mm -hmm. worth is or your capacity. I mean, they're younger, they haven't been through life, so they wouldn't know. And at the same time, they're not gonna remunerate you in the way that they could. And, And then once people reach 35, they often begin to realize, gee, is this what I always want to be doing? And I would say to anyone listening who is younger out there, Absolutely do what you just said, like that self-development pieces on the side, no matter what that is. Life continues after 40, by the way. People in their (laughs) 40s, 50s, even 60s say that their lives are much better now than they were in their 20s and 30s. If you're physically healthy, like I am, it's great. I'm 50. I can go surfing, go, uh, you know, hike the Grand Canyon all night long. Like all of this is great. But I'm also very aware that every year of my 50s is the last year, I'll, last time I'll ever have that year. Let's imagine that someone is going to choose a university or high school degree and they're doubting about what they should pursue. I just said like systems, people, difference. Are there any vectors that you could ask people like, think about this? What, what do you prefer more as doing as a job or your mission or purpose in life, giving your vast knowledge about personality and neuroscience, are there kind of dichotomous vectors that you could ask people that they say, like, choose maybe a profession in this direction or a degree? Yeah, absolutely. So it, towards the end of my book way back when, 20 years ago, Character and Personality Type, when character was all the rage as a topic, I, I mentioned four things for people to think about with their career. One of them is what are your values? Because every sphere of career area has values. You know, the sports world, the legal world, the medical world, they all have particular sets of values, both in theory and then in practice. And, and actually try out some time in those, not just about the skills, but do you know, like, do you want to be with those kinds of people, you know, supporting those kinds of values? If the answer is yes, great. If no, move on. The other is to know your talent not because you should be doing your talent necessarily all the time, but you do want to tap your strengths as a great foundation. 
to have their, make sure your talent is integrated, whatever you do, because your talent is your thing that like you do well, and it doesn't take a lot of energy to do it. <laughs> so, and I understand, especially as people get towards midlife, they're like, oh my God, I want to do something different. And that's great. Don't completely jettison your talent. Just get really clear on what your talent is. You know, that's the second thing. The third thing is what kind of lifestyle do you want? Because if you say, oh, I want to be a, a courtroom lawyer, do understand you will be getting up at 530 every morning, like five days a week, like in the military. And, and that's and you're going to be doing a lot of paperwork, a lot of paperwork. And then understand with values, and I've heard multiple lawyers say this, the practice of law is about how much you can lie and get away with it. So do understand that is what you will be doing much of your time. So I would really say it's like, you know, if you want that more relaxed lifestyle, I want the ability to travel. I love travel. I want to work on my own schedule because I'm not a specialist and I'm not a generalist. I'm like, I'm the polymath kind of person. And so I arranged my life to make that happen. And if you want a lifestyle that's more flexible, know you're going to pay. In some way, you're going to make less money or you're going to have more work or whatever mm -hmm. it is. But be clear on what kind of lifestyle you want. The fourth thing, I don't remember what that was, but I, no doubt it was a good one. Yeah. You'll just have to find the book. <laughs> to, uh... Another question, which is a very hot topic in personality, when you look at romantic compatibility regarding like temperaments, interaction style, cognitive functions, is there any advice you would give people like, hey, if you're this kind of person, this temperament, this way, try to find someone at least who has this or avoid a person who's this? Is there anything that is clear from your research when it comes to relationships? Yeah. So I, I would say like three or four things come up right away from, from research, both that students of mine have done over the years, because it's a, a topic that they love to tackle for their <laughs> projects and, and just my own life. And then of course, like a bunch of actually MBTI studies in the, the MBTI published manual and, and all of that. One is I think that the people were compatible with in the first half of adult life are different oftentimes in the people we're compatible with in the second half of adult life, hmm. because we do change and we do develop. And what was uh, a blind spot or something that was like different between us, but not really that important, neither of us valued it. So it didn't matter. Um, that's fine. You know, we can glaze it over. So example, INTJ, earlier in life, you'll be developing second, third function, mostly so like ENFP is like a great, you know, like a counterpoint to that. But in the second half of life, INTJ is going to be looking at like, dude, this extroverted sensing is like really sweet and going to want to do all these things. And ENFP is like, no, introverted sensing is the thing. And so one of them is going to be the stay at home that's cultivating this like high quality of simple living. And the other one is going to be like wanting to do adventures and have fun and, and having sensory experiences. So then maybe actually an SFP is as big of a stretch as it is, you know? So that, that's not like a magic formula, but I would say be open to the idea that like who you are now, like 15 years from now, and of course this is not amenable to like until death do us part, but this is what I'm saying. The most important result though, seems to be emotional maturity, mm -hmm. regardless of type that if two people know themselves well and they have the capacity to regulate their emotions, to understand and regulate their emotions, not to suppress them, you know, but to be mature about things, that emotional intelligence is the number one thing that any type can and is 
with any other type, and it really matters whether they're both willing to stretch. And then they understand themselves as well, you know, that, that they know enough about themselves to regulate themselves. And, and I think that's huge. The third thing that sort of comes to mind, maybe not as important, but certainly seen among college students, was that when you get two pragmatic types together, like uh, artisan and rational, you know, otherwise known as improviser and theorist, that, that they're going to have shorter, more practical relationships. Oh, this is not working. Okay, go on to something else. That with the affiliative type, so that's SJ and NF, or idealist and guardian, that they can stay in relationships longer because they have this affiliative orientation. Even when the relationship, by the way, is no longer appropriate, they're still going to stay in it. So just as the pragmatic types may end too soon, the affiliatives may stay too long. Mm-hmm. And uh, probably people, everybody's had some, at least one of those experiences. And so, you know, it, it, it can at times, uh, you know, offer type offers tips like that. The same with communication, informing versus directing communication style. And that, that's where, where I feel like temperament and interaction styles are actually more useful than the straight up type code and sometimes even the functions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk about the psychedelics and shamanism. How does a neuro researcher who is like personality get into psychedelics and shamanism? You know, I, I started by going with a friend. And that's, uh, I think that's a great way to start. And uh, my friend was Brazilian and he had been through the experience before. And he says, let's go to Brazilian shaman. And my a third friend who was not Brazilian but said, "Yeah, I did it like 20 years ago. You go, for, like, go for it. You'll have a good time." Oh my god! Oh my! I like, I literally thought 24 hours later I was going to have PTSD for the rest of my life. I, you know, I sort of do, but when you wake up, then it's like, "Oh my god, yes." Uh, <laughs> you know, there's, I have a choice maybe to go back. I'm not going to go back. Uh, it, it was a, you know, not an instant journey. So I would say there are, of course, different ways to go about it. I'm a strong advocate of any kind of practice which is not with a hallucinogenic because that's a great way to integrate the benefits you get of hallucinogenics into everyday life. So to have a yoga practice, to have some kind of like a drumming shamanic journey practice, meditation, mindfulness practice, whatever it is. I really do believe body-mind, and I don't call it mind-body, even though that's what's in the literature. I call it Mm body-mind, body comes first. 80% of the signals in the nervous system flow upward from the body into the brain, not the other way around. So to include both. But yeah, it was not something I was thinking of. It was something that's sort of vaguely there in my background. I had been exposed sort of tangentially to these things two or three times over the years. Was very much somebody who's like, no, 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 I'm not going to use anything that would affect my brain, my most prized possession. Thank God I got over that obstacle. You know, and, and I would say it, it's actually something quite serious that there, there's a reason why various, we'll call entheogens, so those are a little bit different than just generic psychedelic and certainly not in the same category as, say, drug, things that are ego-reducing rather than ego-enhancing, things that take you away from the world as illusion rather than immerse you further in it. Those are shown tremendous promise. Uh, the Beckley Foundation in the UK has done, you know, spearheaded tremendous research to help for depression, anxiety, all these other problems. One in four Americans uh, is diagnosed with a mental illness. It is not uniform even across the population. It varies. There's some, you know, some groups up to 45 percent, even when normalizing for access to healthcare 
mental health care. Uh, so really very concerning. Uh, I think some of that is overdiagnosis, but some of it is because modern life is so detached from our evolutionary heritage. Yeah, I, 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 I often take a look at the psychedelics as having a date with yourself, as having an honest look with yourself, as playing with your perception. And what often is psychotherapy, it's having honest conversations with yourself, it's having a mirror that reflects back on you. So when I took uh, psychedelics, it's almost like, I can have a look at my perception. I can see like how I'm looking. I'm seeing how I'm looking at what I'm looking and I can see all these perspectives and I can become more aware of how I feel and how I sense influence what I experience and what I experience influences what I feel and what I sense. And you can play with those perspectives. That's what I found very illuminating. Oh yeah, ab absolutely. And and the one there, there are ones which are more mental in nature, and there are ones that are more physical in nature, like mm -hmm. ayahuasca is quite a physical and emotional experience, as well as mental and spiritual experience. And I look at it this way, people who've asked, I say it's like, some people say it's like three months of psychotherapy in one night. Others will say, I, I like to say it's a cross be between like uh, religion, psychotherapy, and bungee jumping. And the bungee jumping, you, you know, you can't get away from. I, the, the sort of another metaphor I like to use is imagine like there's a castle with walls and that's your ego and that's you. And, and I don't mean ego in a bad way, like that's your identity mm -hmm. and what you keep track of consciously. And what it does, what these can do is that they soften the walls so that it becomes very porous and it allows the things in which are at the edge of your awareness that you tend to neglect thinking about. And it brings them in and it taps what I'd like to say is our inner healer and our inner storyteller and allows us to, to connect, as you said, with ourselves and with, a, you know, a lot of it is about connection. I would say ultimately a connection with our bodies, connection with ourselves, connection with the natural environment, connection with other people, connection with the divine, connection with our, our cultural heritage, like these connections. And people today are so in, in our postmodern world, you know, every every connection is to be treated very lightly as this like poof thing, or it's given the opposite status of like something that's like, you know, like this is you. It has to be determining you. Yeah, and, well, well, and, well, on one hand, and that's what I find fascinating in these days. On the one hand, it's oftentimes very subjective and you can choose everything, ultimate freedom. But the other hand, Jungian science archetypes, the subconscious, it still is often like a taboo, like that's woo-woo, that's mystical, that's not real. What is your opinion about that? And I also find it fascinating because you have these neuroscientists like Hawkins and it's all like determinism, etc. But I see a fascination with you with symbolism, archetypes, all these other subconscious or spiritual aspects. Yeah. Perspective I want to make, uh, impress on listeners is that the definition of the word empiricism or empirical, as it's used in America, like the United States, is actually quite different than the European tradition. And in America, the idea is that something should be measurable and you should be able to do statistical analysis on it. And if you can't, then it's not, quote, real science. Imagine, you can imagine the French words I might say after this. You know, in the European tradition, empirical means that it's observational. The phenomenological research, action research, all of these things fall under empiricism. Tactical, right? Uh, yeah. And, and you know, so I, I've heard a psychologist say, oh, no, like, 
the the collective unconscious has been debunked. Mm-hmm. I'm like, first of all, like you're using the word that was just made up culturally 20 years ago. Like, stop using that word. You don't know what it means. A second of all, that's just ridiculous. Uh, you know, we have this huge evolutionary heritage being like completely, I can give the atheist answer. We have this huge evolutionary heritage that we bring with us into our everyday lives to somehow claim that, that those have absolutely no impact whatsoever on who we are. Even our parents' behavior, you know, the grandparents and so on is just preposterous. You know, it just the, the, the biology of the human layout of the body. You know, this is a point in anthropology that we're well-sized to work with fire. It's just the way that fire works is a chemical, the chemically, and the reaction and the size of the human body is a medium-sized creature. Like, we're really optimized for working with fire in the way that, like, a kitten is not, even if it had hands. You know, there's, like, these very basic things. And so stuff like, you know, like a mother and father figures in the psyche or the, mm-hmm. the, the monster, whether that's a dragon or a whale or whatever it is. You know, I, sometimes I feel like, boy, these people come out with theories. They don't have children, do they? Because if they did, they would see like how intrinsic these are to the human experience. And they speak to us, as Jung described, on a meaning level. He also said there's a definite level, like the material level, and that's great too. But there's also there's a meaning level. And to not be afraid of working with that. And in fact, if we're afraid of it, but we're just going to end up being victims of it by pushing it away. Yeah, and that's the big question that I have. I collect fairy tales all around the world, by the way. I plan on writing them myself. Why do these stories about Troy mythology have so much power if it's just stories? They keep on being something very valuable and give a transcendental meaning to people. So in this postmodern era, where can we still get values from? Because I feel that there's a value crisis to meaningfully navigate our life and it's all, you know, do whatever, but there's an existential void in people. So the question is, that's also what Nietzsche asked, but he never gave an answer. Where can we still get our values from? Even you, when you say like, when you want to study, you should take a look at your values, but these transcendental, meaningful values that hold the community together in this postmodern world, like where do we get them from? I felt that working with psychedelics, and I use the word work, it's not playing with, it, it is effort, really clarified for me personally the things that, the, the few things countable on one hand that are actually important for me, and that everything else is baggage. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a beautiful distinction between the Eastern and Western traditions. The Western tradition is so often like with spiral dynamics or whatever it is about mm-hmm. making the ego more sophisticated. I, I'm actually a, not a fan at all of spiral dynamics. Mm-hmm. I think it misleads people seriously. E- you know, in, in making our ego more sophisticated, more functional does have its benefits. But the, the classic Eastern tradition is to simplify, to remove all of the masks, the scripts, the, the costumes, the stages all of these things to get at the essential wisdom which we all already possess inside of us. And and I mean that in a really, really profound way, like 99.998, whatever it is, percentage of everything that we think is physical is actually, I won't say empty space, it's blur space. Okay, there, there's really, for practical purposes, nothing there. If we look at even what we think are particles like electrons and neutrons and so on, and we go deeper, we see at the quantum chromodynamic level that it's all energy. There's only energy. 
The only thing that really exists here between you and I and our listeners is that we are blobs of consciousness. I don't know. I'm not going to define what the consciousness mm-hmm. is, but I'm going to say it's energy. It's clearly energy is organized in their patterns in the movement of energy in the universe. Uh, there are frequencies of energy that give rise to things that distinguish one from another. And then some of that energy is self-reflective through its organization and whatever that is. And so why is it such a heresy to think that, you know, fundamentally, we're all just this tapestry of consciousness and, and that we have essential wisdom inside of us? So for me, finding my identity, my purpose, I would say clarifying, I didn't need to find it, I knew what I was good at and so on and benefits to give. But but really clarified all the things that didn't need to be there. And and some of the right also clarified some very practical things to get on top of and fix. And that's for me was, and I imagine different people have different paths in their life, but you know, there's so many distractions, there's so much false consciousness. It, it's appalling. Like it, it's really like I try not to even think about it because See, I, the, I this can, is this I, is the thing I, that I found fascinating to ask you when you talk about you're also into gaming and helping people discover their strengths and using technology and talking about Maya, which is the, v- the, veil, the veil of illusion. On the other hand, we also see the transhumanism starting, the virtual reality, people more and more living in a digital world, which is kind of like also a digital Maya. So we see this tendency of people to live even more in the Maya, but a digital Maya within the Maya. So how do you look at it? I had this experience Years ago, I had the Christmas break, and like I sometimes do after a heavy teaching load or work, I just like, and I'm not even a big gamer, but I just completely geeked out on gaming for like a week. And it it was like, you know, the 12 hours a day on Knights of the Old Republic. (laughs) Star Wars. Yeah. Dude, so I, you know, finally I ran out of food in the house and I'm like, oh God, I have to go to the market after three solid days. So I walk into the market, I'm going down the aisle and I see the can of soup that I want, which is progressive lentil soup, lentil soup. And I reach out my hand for just a moment to telekinese the, the can to come to my hand. And I'm like, why is it not moving? And this is truly just like one second. But my brain had become so attuned to the idea that I can just stretch out my arm and it comes to me. And I have to say that I'm not a big gamer in the sense of like playing a lot of computer games and whatever. Not that I dislike them. I just, I don't have time. And I prefer tabletop games because then we get to socialize Mm -hmm. and so on. But I have to say, I've I've played the Star Wars virtual reality one, the, the most recent one. And oh my God, every single scene sits in my mind as if it had really happened. Mm-hmm. And that is truly profound. I'm not saying that's bad, but you know, at the internet, at the dawn of it, people thought it was going to be this huge salvation for humanity. And now we can see what has become of the second wave, not first wave, but second wave of tech giants. Yeah, what if they find a certain neural regions that are activated by real experience and they just simulate it, hashtag sex in Japan? Uh, experience that you really feel like it feels like the act, it looks like the act, it smells like the act, it stimulates the same brain regions, but I'm sitting here in my mama's basement with a Big Mac in my hand, but it feels like I'm actually living that experience. 
what would be the argument for you pro or against to say like no it's not the same experience as actually living it when so much of the experience is wired in a way that it feels the same hmm well, you know, it's, uh, first of all, I, I'm hired at times to gauge people's brain activity as they go through training simulations. And the whole point is to show that we can actually change the brain wiring over time by having them go through simulations. So uh, is this a hypothetical? Is not just a hypothetical, like I'm actually paid to, to see when this happens. So it's a real thing. Thank goodness some of them do a bad job of it, but that time will pass. And just like in advertising and in quote unquote news, which isn't news, it's entertainment, mm. that, you know, they will find ways and, and people will be strongly influenced. You know, the question always comes down to though is what is at stake? Mm. And I have to thank my colleague in type, Antonia Dodge, for raising this great question. What is at stake? And if nothing or not much is at stake, you can just take off the headset, then really it was an experience, but it wasn't truly an experience. And that comes back to what I said earlier about consequences. Do people experience the feedback of their choices? Uh, I mean, in any case, you and I have chatted about this. You know, it's very different than saying I'm going to New Guinea and I'm going hiking and then we're going to do uh, some, you know, like a kayaking there and the hike through the jungle and did I get my shots? And that creates a different experience when people are in a state of hardship, when they feel they have something to lose and something to gain, that they behave with their, their fellow human beings in a different way. And they bring out parts of themselves that, that can never come out, I think, uh, otherwise. I mean, of course, under controlled circumstances, that's the point of psychedelics. The psychedelic experiences that I've had feel very real. They're very memorable. I mean, real in the sense of impactful. I'm not hallucinating. I, I know that mm -hmm. you can, if there's a fire, I can get up and leave the building. It's just fine. But, you know, does it have emotional impact? And that is really often, you know, when we say, is there skin in the game? That is any shadow material given room to come out? Is the animal animus archetypes given room to come out? And if they aren't, and I believe today so many people are insulated, uh, especially in the baby boomer generation today, insulated from, you know, any kind of shadow material coming out for them. That, that there's no reason to experience it. You know, no, no reason to have a different view of things because life yeah, is... Yeah, it's kind of like the disavowing of the shadow and then it attaches itself to a projected enemy and then it feeds off of blaming that enemy for your own personal flaws or shadows. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the fundamental Jungian piece besides neurosis was projection. And, and actually, the neurotic is healthier than the projected person, because at least the, the projecting person. And, and projection is a huge problem in our society because the media is so ever-present in so many ways, allowing us to project and step into other people's lives. I do believe, by the way, that there will be many good applications of VR and AR, and that we will go through a wonderful renaissance period. So this is like the Cassandra me talking for like a 20 years or something, which will maybe hopefully have the chance to like transform education and like all these things which are way behind. Like there's no reason that the first two years of university life are not online. I, I don't mean to just sit there like a dummy, but like why pay $4,000 to take calculus when you can have the finest teacher teach you calculus already? And, and it's going to be like that, but more. And, and we will go through a golden age with that. And then eventually it will be abused because, you know, I like to say 
People say yeah, that you have the alchemist stone in your hands, almost like personality yeah. research, the brain, seeing how they reacted, gathering information on such a vast level that you can almost predict people that individual or their collective behavior better than themselves with all the data, what they say, how they feel, maybe biometrics in the future. So with yeah. all these means of power to influence behavior and perception, what is your opinion about what the future of humanity will look like or what it will head the coming like let's say 10 years the, those are two very different questions there is the saying that politics is downstream from culture i believe culture is downstream from technology i believe america i mean united states has uh, i say united states because i get people in latin america really irritated that the u.s calls itself america when there's like hundreds of millions of people yes. also living in america who are mm -hmm. not the u.s mm -hmm. and they're perfectly fine countries and, and great cultures. I believe the U.S. has the capacity to pull out one more technical revolution to save its butt. Uh, mm -hmm. There are so many horrible, horrible choices going on right now. Being at the university, I can tell you, not amongst the students or faculty so much, but at the administrative level, tremendous misconduct. That's just not my opinion. Uh, other people who work, I know someone who worked in the finance department for many years. The fact that the university multiple times lost in court for misconduct like, I'm sorry, the law has decided you engaged in misconduct, no matter mm -hmm. what campaign you sell. You know, I, I think it's hard for many people in the U.S. to, uh, to believe that the, the, the highest levels of American culture are profoundly corrupt, mm -hmm. and which is really disappointing because I'm a great believer in the Enlightenment, despite, you know, all of the flaws. But, you know, the Enlightenment was an attempt to, to embrace science and faith, whatever form that takes, either of them to have the honor both the human being as an individual and to progress together as a society in a rational way. That, and humanism, that, right? Yeah, that, that is, is very humanistic uh, at the same time. And I believe there are a lot of facets to that. The person can be devoutly religious or a person can be a humanist or whatever, and they're still within that enlightenment rubric. But when we step out of that rubric, which I think that the culture within my lifetime has slipped out of it, that... that I'm not sure what comes after the next 10 or 20 years. I mean, history certainly says when we look at the history of the Netherlands or of the UK, that any great economic power is doomed to fail, that they always fail in the same ways. The Roman Empire failed the same way that the, the Golden Age of the Dutch Republic did. You know, it's, it's fiscal incontinence, perhaps, is the word. And so we're not going to escape that. But America also has the uh, United States. All of the Americas have tremendous resources so we'll see what happens. I felt very much, and this is one of those introverted intuiting moments. I was in New York City in 1999, and there was this sign that said, where will you be in the year 2000? And which was a big deal, you know, with like Y2K coming mm. and like all of this stuff. And, and that was after, you know, this book had come out, the end of history and so on. And I saw that sign and the moment this vision came to me that was so clear that 1999 was the best year in the U.S. In my, will be the best year in my lifetime. And I still believe that's the case today. I'm not saying advances aren't happening. You know, there, there are advances, advances in technology, advances in civil rights, advances here and there. Hashtag again, Prince. Tonight yeah, you're going to yeah, party like yeah, it's 1999, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And, and yet the foundation is very poor. And I don't mean the people uh, I always believe that every generation that comes along, the people have tremendous capacity. I wouldn't be a teacher without that. I, I've seen students 
literally go from thinking I'm afraid of doing this module working on it has math. Or, you know, we were taught that in international development studies that, you know, you really, there's no way out of most situations. You, you can't, you just most policies fail. And then they would come to me at the end of the class and they're like, wow, I learned so much. Like life isn't hopeless. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that there are set answers, but like everywhere, but there, there's like life is not hopeless. And I'm like, yeah, so I'm a strong believer in every generation. Mm-hmm. But sometimes as East people in, in, to some extent, Central, but also Eastern Europe can say, you know, communism or authoritarianism inflicted tremendous damage. Uh, every person I meet whose family comes from the Soviet Union or uh, Czechoslovakia or whatever it was, they're far more eyes wide open mm-hmm. than any American I normally meet who has grown up in a life of relative luxury. I mean, yeah, and that's also something that I realize about left, right, affiliative, pragmatic. Any extreme can become perverted. But sometimes when I talk about the affiliative going to the extreme, which is more aligned, I think, with like communism or the feminine, it's like a witch with makeup. And people mistake appearances for content. So everything can become perverted. It's not just something that is only with fascism or on the right. It's also on the left. But I do believe in the power of the human spirit and that it goes in cycles. But a lot of things are taken for granted and we have to fight for it again and stand up for it again. And that's how it goes. So we're we're definitely in for some interesting types. But humans are very adaptable. And we have a lot of uh, things from the past that we can learn from. So yeah, it's going to be for the forward thinking intellectuals, rationals, idealists to stand up for certain values, to put certain essential values and characteristics of enlightenment, humanism, central again. I want to thank you for all your research that you're doing in personality and all those interesting facets and to show people that you also can back up the personality research with science. If you could leave a dent as uh, Dario Powers or Dario Nardi in the universe at the end of your life, what is the kind of dent you would love in the universe? And what is the message you would love to give to humanity, especially in these corona times that I'm doing this uh, interview in? Part of me is like, gee, you know, so many people I encounter, if only they had a, a week in the jungle with ayahuasca, that would shake them out along uh, out, out of a lot of the masks and the, the scripts and the monkey brain and the, all of that that's, that's captured them. But I think the thing that has really helped me the most is like disengage from the media. That doesn't mean I don't know what's going on or something, but I would say there was a point towards the end of March I mean, this is the practical, you know, thing right now, like this year, next year, disengage from the media. I really found it within myself a couple of years ago because of work with psychedelics. I no longer felt the need to respond to anything that anybody published on Facebook or Reddit or whatever it was. I'm like, whatever, you know, this is not important. And so that's the the power of uh, disengagement. But, you know, the first step, it needs to begin with, and I don't mean disengaging from your podcast. I think that we're talk- we understand it's, it's programmed media, and that's a little bit different than thoughtful media. That, I would say, is a really profound first step. And then the other is to take, a, take up a body-mind practice, and that might even just be just gardening. But please, please, like any kind of body-mind practice, you will save your sanity. Yeah, man. That's uh, important to have a 
detox from the media sometimes because you are not just what you feed yourself with, you are what you feed your senses. And when all you look at, that is your perception of the world that kind of enhances the future of humanity. So I also want to bring some hope that you can also shift your perspective, delve deep in yourself, shed some light, and also work with your shadows. And that way you can get more awareness, empower yourself, and empower humanity. Thanks so much for sharing your wisdom on the podcast and all the best in your research and all future endeavors. It was an honor to have you as a guest. Thank you. It was a delight to be here. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe, share, and leave a comment. And if you're a coach or consultant and you want to scale your online business or maximize your productivity, check out the show notes to find out more about Philip and his coaching programs. Rent over.